As we gather today on Sunday, as we do every Sunday, we gather to sing praise to God, to encourage one another in the truth, to use our gifts of encouragement to one another, and also to go to God's word, to be reminded of the truth, taught the truth, encouraged in and matured by the truth. As a church, we're working our way through the book of Mark. And so this morning, we're going to continue starting at Mark 2, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6, uh, looking at Jesus's comments about the Sabbath. If you remember, as we work our way through the book of Mark, uh, you have Jesus, who's pretty important in the book. It is a history of Jesus. It's, remember, from the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a historical truth of what Christ did on earth, all with a purpose and a theme, the urgency of the gospel of Christ. As Jesus said in Mark 1, he said, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. And it's throughout the book of Mark that Jesus continues to clarify this message, both for us, uh, those who were not Jews, who did not understand uh, or do not understand nor lived at the time as Jesus was speaking, but Mark recorded, same as Matthew and John and Luke, for our benefit. But also Jesus spoke at that time for those people to understand that what God had promised, the kingdom of God, the gospel of Christ, had come. And what was necessary for the gospel to take root in them was for them to repent and believe in the gospel of God. There was one group particularly uh, that we continue to see through the gospel of Mark and the other gospels, the Pharisees. If you remember, as we talked about the Pharisees the last couple weeks, uh, they have named themselves thus, being that they are holy or separate, set apart. They're holy from everyone else. They're taking a truth that God's people are called to be holy, but they are proclaiming that truth in a self-righteous way throughout all of their actions. It's very clear that they don't see the gospel of Christ as something inviting. They see it as something offensive. Because when Jesus says, repent, a Pharisee feels, I have nothing to repent of. And so we will continue to see as Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, that as he is proclaiming the gospel, the gospel which they should know, the gospel which they should have read of, the gospel which they had heard as young men and growing men, they continue to deny the gospel, to look in the face of their Savior and seek, as we see this morning, to destroy him. As we say frequently, the gospel is about faith and repentance. That's the very message Jesus preached. Repent and believe in the gospels. The gospel, there's one recorded in the gospels, of which there are four. But let's move on. So as we look this morning, I want you to be reminded of that. See the compassion of Christ. See the grace of God that he, the only righteous one, would come and function in such compassion toward man. And marvel and wonder at the grace of God to you. And see the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. See the heart of a Pharisee that does not want to repent. The heart of a Pharisee that always finds themselves righteous and looks out at everyone else and finds sin, but never within. Jesus has very harsh things to say to the Pharisees. His harshest words are saved for those who find themselves as the religious elite, doing what no one else can do. And so this morning, that is my prayer. We would not just remember the history, the truth that is here, but we would dwell heavily on the grace and mercy of God and that we would dwell on our own hearts knowing 
that we could easily be compelled to function like the Pharisees. So as that is our goal, let's pray that God would be so gracious as he continues to be, that by his spirit he would change our hearts as we look together at Mark, starting at verse 2, verse 23. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. Uh, We thank you in all times that in your providence you care uh, for all things. You cause the sun to rise. You cause the earth to rotate. You cause all things to continue. Lord, as there are many things outside of our hands, things we don't know, things we're unaware of, we can trust and depend on you. I pray, Father, as there are many things going on in our world, many things going on in our lives, you would help to give us focus this morning, that we would look to your word and be reminded of your compassion, your kindness, and our need for repentance and faith and dependence upon your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Look with me at verse 23 in your handout or in your Bible. Mark 2, starting at verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anyone to eat but the priests, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately had counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. As we look at this passage, there's things you need to understand. It's never wise to grab your Bible and go, I'll just start reading here. Uh, without any knowledge of what's going on there. In all reading, you want to understand the words that you're reading. So when you come to this passage and you see the word Sabbath, you might go, what is that? Right? You want to get a good Bible dictionary. Uh, You have plenty of online tools. You want to search that. You want to figure out what is the Sabbath. So that's your homework. We'll come back next week. Just kidding. So let me give for you a quick, just simple definition of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the seventh day. It's a Saturday. Uh, In the Ten Commandments, one of them, remember, is to keep the Sabbath holy. There are specific commands uh, quite a few times. You can see at the top of your handout, you could look in Exodus 20 is the first command of this in the Ten Commandments. Also in Exodus later in 31 and then Leviticus 19, 3 and 30, you have commands about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was to be a day of rest. It was to remind the Jews and all of Israel and that their God, the only God, the God who created all things, was not like the false gods of the nations. 
He was the creator of everything. They were to remember his creation, that in six days God created all things, and on the seventh day he rested. Not because he was tired, not because he needed to rest, but he was setting aside a day of holiness for his people to remember and to look at. It was a declaration of his power, not weakness. His rest was not declared for him, but as Jesus says, Sabbath was created to serve man. And so the Sabbath existed as a holy day in Israel. Uh, In the Old Testament, it was commanded that they would observe this day as holy and that they were to labor six days. And then on the seventh day, they were to rest from labor. It was to be set aside to worship God. So it was not to be a day that was spent laboring and working in order to provide for yourself. And in the ancient world, remember, labor is quite a bit different than we think of it in the modern world. It's not a clock in, clock out, 40 hours a week. I've heard many young people complaining about why didn't we decide to just live floating on boats eating fruit. It's probably because they've never been on a boat or tried to grow fruit. They don't understand how difficult both of those things are. But the, the modern idea of a work week is actually very light and simple compared to the ancient world for most people. And God in his grace commanded them to work six days and to rest on the seventh. As many modern people, you might be tempted to work more days than is necessary to provide for you because you're fearful of provision. You want to make sure you're provided for in the ancient time even more so. So there would be great temptation to say, man, this is the middle of the harvest. We've got to work like crazy. We can't take a day off. We've got to take care of this. But God had his people rest to remember that he cares for him, them in his providence and his care. And so the Sabbath is a command of the Old Testament uh, to Israel. It was a ceremonial law of Israel, much like animal sacrifices and other things that existed in Israel that we don't necessarily practice at this point, uh, but all had purpose in pointing towards something greater. And so for the Pharisees who were Jews, the Sabbath would be a command, uh, though for us it's not. Many Christians want to hold the Sabbath. They just want the Sabbath to be about four days long rather than, than one. Right? I, I know a lot of Sabbatarians, Christians, who want to argue for rest and a day of rest. Uh, but most of those Christians I don't know to put in six days of work. They just want another day of rest. Uh, and that's a characterization and a little mean jab at my Christian friends who are Sabbatarians. But... I'm just going to let it ride. So the Sabbath was a serious matter, a serious command of God. And as you look in the Old Testament, there were serious consequences to not observing the Sabbath and what it was, as there are all consequences of, of not recognizing what God has commanded. But the same as in everything else, the Pharisees would take the Sabbath and they would turn it into a system of their own righteousness. The Sabbath commands of the Old Testament are very simple. This is not a day for work and production. This is a day for rest and dependence, reflecting on God. Not a day to busy yourself with the provision and labor that is good and right. You are to rest in worshiping God with the worship that is good and right. To recognize your dependence upon him. The Pharisees, uh, despite this simple command of the Old Testament, turned it into a command of their own righteousness. Pharisees loved the Sabbath. They loved to complicate the Sabbath. They loved to put law on top of law about the Sabbath. I shared one with you just a few weeks ago that there was a Sabbath law that if someone spit on the Sabbath, they were in sin. 
because it's possible that their spit could hit the ground and roll in such a way that they were tilling the soil, and that would be to work. And so if they were to spit, they had to spit on a rock and make sure that there was no soil that it would land on, because then they would be tilling the soil. It is such silly accusations that are coming now at Jesus' disciples from the Pharisees. The Pharisees are offended because Jesus' disciples are plucking heads of grain, and Luke tells us they're, they're taking them in their hand and they're rubbing them together to separate the edible grain from the sheath of the grain, and then they're eating it. So to the Pharisees, they are threshing. They are working it out, right? They're working it out so that it's just the gluten left. That's all they want, right? Just like us. No? Anyway, so they're working it out to just the wheat, not the gluten. And they want the wheat, and they break it down and put it in their mouth. Now, as you study your Old Testament, this is actually a law in Israel. Uh, that This is to be what functions in Israel. You are to leave your grain and not to prosecute anyone who is traveling through and eats off of that as they're traveling. You're, you are allowed to walk through Israel if you are traveling somewhere, to take the fruit or the grain of someone else's field to sustain yourself as you travel. This is a great law. Every time I drive up McCall, I'm like, man, I should pick those oranges. Does anybody pick those oranges? Why are they sitting by the hospital? Are they just falling on the ground? It was not intended to steal your neighbor's fruit, though. It was intended to sustain people as they're going. So really, in Old Testament law, the disciples are breaking no law. Uh, They're not threshing. Uh, They're merely feeding themselves. They are not preparing the food. Uh, They're breaking no law of the Old Testament. Jesus makes that clear. You didn't need me to tell you that. Uh, But you could look and see that there is nothing being broken by them. But Jesus gives six points to the Pharisees. I would say in compassion. The Pharisees are arguing the unrighteousness of Christ and his disciples. And Jesus, in grace and compassion, argues back to clarify and to point out their failure to understand the truth. These righteous Pharisees, the ones who pride themselves on knowing the truth and the whole truth, set themselves apart as the holy ones that are an example to the world, are rebuked by Jesus. And the first rebuke is very pointed. Number one in your outline, and you can see it in verse 25 and 26, he starts by saying to them, Have you never read what David did? This might sound like just a direct question, but to ask a Pharisee, have you never read the Word of God? Jesus asks them frequently. He points them frequently back to the Word of God, which is helpful for us in reminding Christ the Messiah points back and says, have you never read the importance of reading and knowing? But Jesus doesn't mean it to them as just, you need to read. He means it to them as, You pride yourself on your knowledge and understanding of this. Have you not read? Have you not read what David did? And so his first point pointed at the Pharisees. Have you not read what David did when he was in need and hungry? You could read the account in 1 Samuel 21. But David is traveling, fleeing from Saul. Uh, He is hungry. He has men with him who are hungry. And David, needing food, goes to the high priest at the time. He goes in and he asks him, I need all the loaves of bread that you can provide me. Five, I think, is the number that he gives. And he says, I I don't have any bread to give you other than the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence is holy bread that each Sabbath would be put on the altar of God, hot, ready, 
prepared and left there as worship to God. That bread then, after it was replaced with new bread, the bread that was there would be for the priests. That would be their provision. And throughout the Old Testament, you might think Israel just slaughtered a bunch of animals, which is true, they did. Uh, and that an- those animals would become the food for the priests, for the Levites. And so while those animals served a purpose in declaring that God, there is an issue between them and God and the need for sacrifice, it was also the provision of the Levites. And so this bread of the presence would remain as worship to God until it was food for the priests, and then it would be replaced. And so this high priest, as you read the account, asks David a few questions. He says, well, are the men holy? You know, have they been with a woman? Are they, are they out here? There's no ancient questions about what many warriors do. Uh, they rape and plunder. And so he's asking, are these holy men? Are these men who are being holy in what they're doing? Uh, and David affirms, yes, they are. And the priest gives him the bread and goes on. And David feeds that to his men. Uh, that priest's whole family is later killed for helping David, the king, by Saul. Uh, and it's an interesting story for you to go back and read. But Christ's argument here is that if they would have gone back to read, they would have seen that this ceremonial law, that this bread only belongs to the priests, when David's men were starving, what did God do? The high priest permitted David's men to eat the bread, and he gave it to them. David didn't steal the bread. It wasn't an unconditional question. But the value of the men was higher than the ceremonial law. And so the bread was given to David and to his men to eat the bread. And Jesus makes a distinction here in that ceremonial law is not more important than human life. This this function, that this is to be the food for the priests, not taken from them, does not mean that the priests could not give it to David at this time to provide for the lives of these men. And so Christ's first argument is, have you not read how God cared for his people, for these holy men? Second, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27, Jesus answers them and he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is cutting to the Pharisees because the Pharisees see the Sabbath as what? A day to exalt them. A day to show them over everyone else. The Pharisees see the Sabbath as a day for them to be paraded. The Pharisees would have laws that they weren't allowed to take a certain amount of steps on a Sabbath. Unless somehow they had a meal prepared after it's like 3,000 steps, and then they could get that many, eat that meal. Then they were allowed to take another 1,050 steps, which is a problem because if you took 3,000 steps from home and then you eat the meal, you can only get halfway back home before you break the law. They had these ridiculous laws. Jesus accuses them in Luke 12. He says, you lay many burdens on the shoulders of people and you do not lift a finger to help them. And so Jesus is clarifying for the Pharisees here. You have taken the Sabbath and you have made it something that you serve to show your holiness to God. That you think this makes you holy before God. And yet they break the Sabbath And that they condemn and judge and look at others in contempt. And they live in self-arrogance and make law upon law that has nothing to do with the Sabbath. 
And so Jesus clarifies for them, why was the Sabbath made? It was not made so that man could display himself as holy and righteous. It was made so that man would reflect on the holy righteousness of God. The Sabbath was not created to be served, but it was created to serve man in their worship of God. And Jesus again gives them opportunity for repentance, clarifying to them what they should know from the word. Three, Jesus says in Mark 28, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Of all the offenses, this might be the greatest to the Pharisees. He has claimed that they have not read clearly what is written about the Sabbath. He's claimed that they do not understand the purpose of the Sabbath. And now he claims authority over the Sabbath. In all Israel, people would look to the Pharisees as those who have the authority of the Sabbath. They are the righteous ones. They are the holy ones. What do they say about the Sabbath is what stands. And the Pharisees loved it and would gloat in it. And Christ declares he is the authority over the Sabbath. It is he who is the ruler, the Lord, the sovereign over the Sabbath. If you look at Matthew, the same account, Jesus gives two other reasons in Matthew. Matthew 12, 5, uh, the same, same story, but this verse adds Jesus, another argument Jesus makes to the Pharisees. Have you not read on the law how the holy Uh, How on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane, quote unquote, profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. You might read that and go, how do the priests profane the Sabbath? Well, there is there is profaning of the Sabbath talked about in the Old Testament in priests that abuse the Sabbath for the abusive people. You have the sons of Eli who do all kinds of horrible things uh, with their priestly role. Uh, But here he says, they profane the Sabbath, but remain guiltless. How is it that they profane the Sabbath? What are the priests doing on the Sabbath when no one is working? They're working. They're sacrificing animals. The slaughtering of an animal is no small work. Say you were 39 years old and decided to slaughter a 250-pound pig by yourself. I can guarantee you, your back would hurt like crazy for the next three days. Because it's not easy work. It's a large animal. They, they were not doing things on the Sabbath that were relaxing. They were doing things on the Sabbath that were labor-intensive for the purpose of the worship of God. They were making bread. They were slaughtering animals. They're flinging the blood of that animals at people. They're doing all kinds of things on the Sabbath that in the Pharisees' eyes would be work. It would be profaning the name of the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you misunderstand the Sabbath. Look at what the priests do. You think the Sabbath is about no physical labor so that you could be holy. But the Sabbath is about the holiness of God and his care for his people. And the priests labor to display the holiness of God to you when? On the Sabbath. Verse 5, or rather number 5 in Matthew also Jesus says, if you understood, you would not condemn the innocent. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Multiple times in the gospel, we see Jesus say this to the Pharisees. But have you not read? Have you not heard? Do you not know that he has said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? 
as Daniel reminded us last week from Hebrews during communion, that the blood of bulls and goats never could atone for sin, but they were pointing to a picture of God's mercy through Christ. It is not sacrifice that God created the world to exist in. Sacrifice was a picture of the gospel from the beginning. In the garden, animals were killed, making clear that Adam and Eve have sinned, and those animal skins covered them. The sacrifice of animals has always been a picture of death to man because man remains in a state of death because of sin. And so Jesus proclaims to them again, like I've mentioned in previous weeks, while they tithe out of their spice rack, their dill and their mint and their cumin, and they're just picking out 10% of that or 20% of that giving it. He says, you, it's better that you would do those things. Sure, if you want to tithe down to the penny, if you want to be that person that just meticulously takes your whole budget and says, how much am I giving to God for the glory of God and for the love of God and the joy like you just love budgeting and you want to do it for Jesus? Praise God. But he says, if you love budgeting and you do it to proclaim yourself righteous over others and you condemn your neighbors, and you belittle others because they don't do things the way you do, you're not doing it for the glory of God. You are taking part in little things to show your righteousness, and you're ignoring the greater things, mercy and care, compassion and love. He tells the Pharisees, you should have done the first and not neglected the greater. Use your gifts. If you want to be a Pharisee that's all about tithing in such a way that you go to Aldi and buy your everything but the bagel spice, you pour 10% out and you go, that's for somebody else. I'm giving that to the church. We're not, I'll take care of everything but the bagel spice, but we're not doing that, right? But if you were to want to do that, and then you just lived an ongoing life of judging everyone else at Aldi, if you stood by the spice rack and go, Oh, oh, you like that everything but the bagel spice? It's good, huh? I love it. I put on everything. I give 10% of it to the Lord. <laughs> oh, oh, you don't? Right? This is, hopefully that's not happening at Aldi. I mean, it might happen at Albertsons. It's a little snootier there. Just kidding. <laughs> right? I'm making a light example of things we often do. We function in such a way and we look down on others saying, how could they? Who do they think they are? I sacrificed so much for him. Sacrifice is not intended to display you are a great sacrifice. Sacrifice was intended to display you are in need of a great sacrifice. He says, I I do not desire sacrifice. It is not the killing of animals that is going to satisfy the wrath of God. He desires mercy. And he sent Christ to show mercy to his people. Lastly, in Matthew, uh, we see the value of man and the law to do good on the Sabbath. Uh, We see this in Mark and Matthew. Look with me at chapter 3 of Mark, verse 1. It says, again, he entered in the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? It appears that he said more to them than Matthew. Remember, Matthew's the full story guy. Mark's the quick to the point guy. 
And Matthew gives the full story in that he also says to the Pharisees, maybe on another account, but it would seem on this account, he asked them a specific question. Matthew 12, 11, it's in your handout. He says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value then is a man than a sheep? It appears sheep aren't people too, right? Nor pigs or your pet dog. Their value is not that of people. A man's life is more valuable. He says, which, which one of you, when you're a cockapoo snitchel has a twisted intensive, will not run to the emergency ER to save the cockapoo snitchel? But if a man is in need, will you help him? Right, this is our modern, people don't have sheep that jump into pits. But Lauren and I spent a few days in Laguna. Everybody was shocked we had a baby. Nobody was shocked that everybody had a dog. And in our society, we see compassion on animals. We see compassion on things. And it's good and it's fine. God says that even an animal should know his love for Christ. A famous preacher once said that even a dog should know that his master was saved because he doesn't get kicked as much. But if we are to treat animals so well, how much more the value of a human? And this is really more about material wealth to them. If your sheep jumps into a pit on the Sabbath, are you going to say, I know that's 150 bucks, you know, on Craigslist market sell. I'm just going to have to let it die. It's the Sabbath. There wasn't a Craigslist then, but no. They're going to say, that's my livelihood. That's my sheep. That's my lamb chop. That's my Passover feast. I'm not letting that thing die in a a ditch. I'm getting it out of there. It's valuable. It says, how much more valuable is another person? As Jesus is going to heal this man's hand, this man who has a withered hand, This man who exists in a world without disability, without social security, without any function that would provide for him, has suffered probably greatly outside of the care and compassion of others to provide for him. And Jesus, seeing this man and having the ability to heal, is preparing to heal him on the Sabbath. And all the Pharisees can think about, is he going to work right now? Is he going to heal that man? And they justify in their mind, he probably deserves it. Why would God do that to him if he didn't deserve it? Many times in the the New Testament, and one particularly, we see them even ask, why is this man made blind? Is it his sin or the sin of his father's? And Jesus responds and says, it's so that God would receive glory. And he heals him. And this man with a withered hand, waiting in the synagogue there on the Sabbath, worshiping God, praising God with a withered hand, And Jesus sees and longs to have compassion. And what can the Pharisees do? All they can do is judge him and seek to condemn him. And so Jesus, asking the question of the value of man, pointing out how important man is compared to animals, how much you might value lesser things and care for them on the Sabbath, and yet you are offended that he would heal a man on the Sabbath, you Pharisee. And so Jesus restores. As all of Jesus' healing, this is not like the man just gets a little bit more function in it and take a couple Advil and call me in the morning. Matthew says his hand was completely restored. 
Jesus is not some modern faith healer that takes advantage of people and keeps the people with cerebral palsy in the back and heals the people with back pain or headaches or anxiety that no one can tell whether it was healed or not. This is Jesus bringing the people to the front and making a man's hand who has been withered completely restored, functional, redeemed. I wanted to say things like returning it to its natural state, where Jesus does what is unnatural in our world. Remember, the world exists in sin, not its natural state, not the way it should. For a short time, God, by mercy, has allowed the world to go on despite the sinfulness of men. And that things like withered hands and broken marriages and death exist because of sin. And yet by his mercy, he causes the rain and the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He keeps all things moving and going in grace. Notice as Jesus is healing this man's withered hand with all authority and power, and the Pharisees mock him. The Pharisees despise him. The Pharisees look at verse 6. They go and hold counsel with the political powers of the time, how they might destroy him. And what does Jesus do? Remember, he asks them a question. He says, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? And what do the all-wise Pharisees do? They sit silently. They have no answer for him. They cannot respond to Jesus. Because Jesus, as always, speaks in such a way that doesn't prolong an argument. It immediately pierces the heart. What are the Pharisees to do? Are they to cry out in the synagogue and say, it is better to leave the man's hand withered? It is better to do evil. We value the life of a sheep more than we value the life of that man. Verbally condemn themselves? Or to cry out in repentance? To say, you are right, Jesus. We have heard your arguments about the Sabbath. We've heard you declare our own self-righteousness. We have heard you make true who we are. We have been disgraced in public circles, and I was angry, and now I recognize I need you. And repent publicly? No. They remain silent. They say nothing. The men who are to lead Israel, the men who are to be the declarers of God's word, the men who are to have read and to know and to show mercy and compassion, the men who are to know the truth and the holiness of God and the doctrine of God, not to hold it over people, but to bolster up people, to worship and honor and glorify God, have nothing to say because the only thing they could say condemns them. And they are unwilling to be condemned because they find righteousness only in themselves. And what is Jesus' response? He is angered. He is angered at their hardness of heart. He is angered as a loving God looking at the men who are to make the truth clear and they remain silent. They can't answer the question whether it is good to do good on God's holy day or to do harm. 
They can't open their mouths to speak the truth to the people. He is rightfully and righteously angry with them. And what does anger stir in the heart of Christ? Grief. Look at verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Christ, the only righteous, the only holy, the only just, the one who will pour wrath out against all mankind, is angered righteously at the hypocrisy and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And what does that anger stir in Christ? Grief for their hardness of heart. It grieves him. As Jesus cries out to Israel later and he says, Israel, oh Israel, if you would have repented, I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her brood. See, so many people see their sin and they see it before God and we know it's there. And we remain silent. We refuse to confess. We refuse to repent. We refuse to make our sin known. We know what that would mean for us. It would mean we are unrighteous and we are unholy, that we are weak and that we are sinners and that we have made ourselves enemies of God. And praise God that Romans says, when you were weak, Christ died for the weak. And Christ died for the sinner. And Christ died for the enemy. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. He is grieved because he already knows they're unrighteous. He already knows they're weak. He already knows they're sinners. And they refuse to confess the truth and depend on Christ. His anger does not lead him to wrath. It leads him to grief and mercy on the cross. Notice Christ doesn't kill the Pharisees. He allows them to kill him. It's incredible that the Pharisees who stand before Christ as righteous, what do they do? How do they walk away from this situation? They go to counsel with others that they might destroy Christ. Maybe for that very reason, Christ is grieved, knowing rather than repent, rather than to follow me with the disciples and to learn and to prepare for the kingdom of God, which is at hand, rather than to believe, they want to do all within their power to destroy anyone that stands in front of their facade of hypocritical self-righteousness. And Christ is rightly angered and grieved. Instead of holy righteousness and destroying the Pharisees before his face, he's committed to the will and the plan and the purpose of God in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit purposed before creation to save his people. He was not unaware nor confused. His anger is not a surprise to him. It is a reminder of him to why he has come that these Pharisees would be saved. And these Pharisees, unlike Christ, cannot accept any declaration of righteousness that is not theirs. Christian, maybe like the Pharisee, you're confused. 
Maybe when you hear the law of God, you misunderstand and, and you apply it in ways that he has not commanded. Maybe you understand it rightly and you understand it condemns you. And you only hear the anger of God. You only understand that what he's saying means that I'm horrible, so what am I supposed to do anyway? You misunderstand the anger of God because you don't understand the grief and the mercy of God. You remain silent rather than cry out for mercy and compassion and kindness. You're confused because you judge righteousness and you judge anger and you judge grief and mercy and love and all of these things by your own heart and not by his. You assume in this situation I would destroy my enemy, but not Christ. He dies for his enemy. Christian, don't be like the Pharisee. Be like Christ. Be like Christ. And I don't say that, meaning you can do this all by yourself. Just stop it. Just be like Christ. No, I mean believe Christ. Repent. Depend on Him. Trust Him. Know that He can give wise counsel, that He does and only gives wise counsel. Know that he has covered all of your sin. His anger did not lead him to destroy you. It led him to the cross. That you would repent and depend upon him. That you would rest in him. Listen to the Psalms where God declares the nature of himself and calls for it in us. He says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not for yourself. It tends only to evil. What do we do when we see the unrighteous in power, the unrighteous making things known, the unrighteous reigning over all things, the unrighteous holding their own foolish righteousness over all mankind like the Pharisees? Do we fret? Do we war? Do we become angry? Do we cry out? Naturally, yes, you are angry. But be grieved, not drawn to evil. Listen to the psalm. It says, fret not yourself. Why? What are you to do? To be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. He knows the timing. He knows when Pharisees will become disciples. He knows when Paul, who murdered Christians, would become the proclaimer of the gospel of all things. What if God listened to the church rather than called the church to wait patiently for him? Saul would have been murdered. Saul would have been dead. Paul, the apostle, would not have existed. Do we need Paul? No, Paul's just a man. Except the fact that God chose to use Paul to do that. So we need him. Our ways are not the ways in which the world is ruled. And so our anger, therefore, should be anger that is grieved and not wrathful. Grieved and doesn't move to evil. It's the command of Ephesians 4, 25 through 27. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. 
Many Christians read this and they see it only as meaning, don't argue with your spouse, make sure that you go to bed without conflict. Might be a good principle. The command here is not to resolve all conflict with humans before you go to bed. The command is, when you find anger in your heart, when you are angry, do not sin. Do not let anger drive you to sin. Do not do evil because of your anger. But deal with your anger. When? Now. Today. Before the sun goes down. Right? Saying, let your anger be dealt with before the sun goes down is saying, deal with it today. Don't let it go on. Deal with your heart. Why? Because if you let this go on, what are you doing? You are giving opportunity to temptation to do evil. When you're not dealing with your anger, when you're not dealing with the frustration, when you're not dealing with your sinful desires and temptation, you are leaving temptation to Satan before you. Why do we do so? Well, if you would look in your Bible or maybe just write down Ephesians 4.17, he tells us what comes before this command in 4.25. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you've learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor in love. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You've been renewed in Christ. You are new. You might have come this morning and you hear of the Pharisees and you say, that's me. Christian, no more. Just like Paul, he's a Pharisee no more. He's Christ's. He belongs to Christ. It's no longer his former life that owns him. He is now owned by the newness of life, the newness of mind, to know God, to live in repentance, to no longer live in the foolishness and the futility of the Gentiles, to no longer be the Pharisee that looks to condemn at every output because I want to show myself righteous that looks out at the world and says out there there's a great problem and if only they were like me. But looks at him and says, if only there was a way that I could be made like him. Jesus is that way. And in his grace and compassion, he does not destroy Pharisees before his face. Though their unrighteousness angers him, it grieves him all the way to the mercy of the cross. Depend on that, Christ. Not your own self-righteousness. Not your own ways. Not your own knowledge. But the grace of Christ, who would not only heal the withered hand, but he would wait for God to work on the withered hearts of the Pharisees. Let's pray that God would be so faithful 
to continue to do so for his people. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is good and faithful. We thank you that we can trust you in all things. We thank you, Lord, that you did not send your son just that we would know, but that you have recorded in your gospels uh, that we could see his heart and his love for your people, that he would make us part of your people. I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we read your word to to not just see the words on the page, but that it would pierce our hearts. I pray you would mature us as a church. I pray us there is much going on in the world that we would not become those that are self-righteous, but as we dwell more and more on your righteousness, we would think and know not how to just condemn the world, but to call the world with us to repent and believe in the gospel. Pray that you would do so, not for our name, not for our glory. Pray if you tarry, Father, far beyond our death, that babies crying in this room would cry out the gospel of Christ, that many might repent and praise you and live in your rest for eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.